0: Or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Right, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm really thankful to be here with you this morning and to be able to study God's Word. Uh, Good to see all of you here. Some of the faces that we, we know so well and some new ones. So it's nice for any new visitors. Thank you for joining us today. It's nice to, to see you with us. Salvan, it's good to have you back with us as well. And uh, do we thank you. Thanks for leading worship on such short notice. As you can see, the, the church dynamics looks a little different because of the impact Corona is having. And so so many of our people are have to isolate and um, and. Um, take some time apart to stay safe and uh, again i encourage you to do the same but in these times of uncertainty again that we find ourselves the one thing we want to do for sure is focus our intention on the truth of god's word the truth of god's word that is truly where we find the source and the sustenance that we need to make sense of this life and i want to start our time of fellowship today by asking you a simple question Do you really believe there's only one way to be saved? Do you really, really believe there's only one way to be saved? Are you totally convinced that the gospel of grace is actually as gracious as it says it is? Because the Bible makes it clear that God is a God that is righteous. Psalm 97 verse 2 says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. But the Bible also makes it clear that righteousness is something that God demands from all of His creatures. Deuteronomy 6 verse 24 and 25, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good ways always, that He might preserve us alive. As we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God. As He has commanded us. But the thing is, the Bible also makes it clear that we have a problem. That we do not have this righteousness on our own. Romans 3 verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. And so where will we find this righteousness that we so desperately need? Paul has been saying, and he's going to keep on saying through our study of Galatians, that the only answer has always been and will always be Jesus and His gospel of free grace. Free grace. We do not have to do any works to earn this righteousness you need. It's a gift that is given to you. But for some people that might sound too good to be true, if they think about it. Is it really possible that I don't have to do anything to be righteous before God on my own? This kind of reminds me of those ad- adverts you see on TV, you know, where the, the deal just seems too good to be true. And then to help people believe how great the product or service is, they, they get these celebrities in to endorse the product. Like a famous athlete or movie star. I mean, I think of George Clooney, you know, if I say George Clooney now, I think most of us think of Nespresso, the, the, the cups of coffee, right? And this must be the world's best coffee because here's the celebrity and he's making it, oh, it's looking so amazing, so cool, calm and collected as he's drinking this coffee. And he's willing to stick his reputation to this product. He's willing to give his stamp of approval to this product. All this effort is going into making people believe that this product is as good as they say it is. Now, in a similar kind of way, but in a more significant way, this is sort of what's going on here with Paul, the Judaizers in Galatians. False teachers are, are, have caused a number of doubts about the authenticity of Paul's ministry. You could say they were questioning the validity of his endorsement. And so all through chapter 1, Paul has been defending his ministry to show the Galatians that the gospel of grace he's proclaiming is the only true gospel there is. Because he received it directly from Jesus. And he was himself a man who was so in desperate need of grace. But we know that grace found him on the road to Damascus. And last time we saw he said that after his amazing conversion, he traveled to Arabia with the goal of showing the Galatians how independent he was from the other Jerusalem apostles. Because even when he got to Jerusalem after three years, he was only there with the apostles for 15 days. So his gospel has been pure all this time, unstained by any human opinion or influence. And in the text that we have before us today, Paul is not defending himself as much as he is defending the very message of free grace. He is continuing his defense And he wants to show the Galatians that when he went to Jerusalem again, there was in fact true unity among him and the other apostles. He did not need their endorsement or their stamp of approval. But proving that they are all on the same page strengthens his authority as God's messenger. That's the big idea we have here in the start of chapter 2 in the first five verses. Paul is protecting grace. And unity by showing that the other apostles were not on the same page as the Judaizers. But they are in fact on the same page with Him. And this is all important as we're talking about there only being one message of true salvation. Because if there was no unity back then, then we can't imagine there will be any unity today, will there? And so no matter what your background is, your culture is, your preferences are, there's only one true message of salvation for us all. A message that unites us in Jesus Christ. And like Paul, we need to protect grace and unity as well. Sometimes from false teachers around us, but sometimes from ourselves, right? From our own thoughts and feelings and how we perceive the truth of the gospel. And to see how Paul continues to make his argument, we're going to see five ways Paul protects grace and unity from Galatians 2, 1 5. Five ways Paul protects grace and unity in order to preserve the absolute purity and importance of the gospel. And this is a big moment in the history of the Christian faith. Because think about it. If the apostles and Paul are not on the same page, then it'll influence everything we know and do. We will be left with so many versions of the gospel. There's going to be this Jewish version for the Jews, a Gentile version for the rest of the people, and every group can have their gospel over here, and that group can have their version of the gospel over there. And the one true unity that we find in the blood of Jesus is not going to exist. And so the first thing we will see in This chapter 2 is that Paul is protecting grace and unity by indicating his partnerships in the gospel. Number 1, Paul is defending grace and unity by indicating his partnerships in the gospel. He writes, Then after 14 years, so then connects it now to the previous section where we left off last time. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking titus along with me now up until this point paul has been making it very very clear that he didn't get some memo or email or fax or maybe in those days a pigeon mail of some sort that tells him what the gospel message is that he has to proclaim he had a direct line to god you could say and the results have been that he's living this transformed life one that we saw took him to Damascus then to Arabia, then back to Damascus, and three years later he went up to um, Jerusalem. And you remember that when he was in Jerusalem, he met with Peter and James, but it was only a brief, like a a two-week visit. And then after he left Jerusalem again, he went into other areas like Syria and Cilicia, and he went back to his hometown in, in Tarsus, proclaiming the message of grace wherever he goes. And you can imagine what it must have been like for the people who knew Paul before he was converted, right? And then he's he's coming home and they see this new guy. Who is this new person? But Paul now continues his argument to the Galatians and he wants to expand on his travels back to Jerusalem by pointing out when he went there again and who went with him. So he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem. Now think about it. It's a long time between his first visit to Jerusalem that we saw last time and this one. 14 years is a long time, right? But why is this detail so important? This helps us to try and figure out when it was that Paul went to Jerusalem and what happened when he was there. Because in the book of Acts, we see that Paul went to Jerusalem at least four or five times. The first time was when he left Damascus that we saw last Sunday. The second time was when he went to help with the famine relief in Acts chapter 11. He was taking a gift to the poor who had suffered during this intense time of food shortage. The third time was for the famous Jerusalem council meeting in in Acts 15 where the issue of circumcision was addressed head on. On this trip, Paul also went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and others where the apostles officially declared that the Gentiles were welcome in the church. And then Paul's fourth visit to Jerusalem was when he got arrested and he was sent to Rome. We see that in Acts 21 to 28. So which visit was it here in Galatians 2 verse 1? That's our question. Paul says he went to Jerusalem 14 years. After 14 years, this most likely means 14 years after his conversion. And so the two candidates that sort of contend for this this experience in Galatians 2 is the famine relief visit from Acts 11, or the Jerusalem council visit from Acts 15. These meetings seem to be very similar in their regard. So it's somewhat difficult to distinguish. But it's the, simila- it's the differences that also tell us a bit more. You see, Galatians says that the meeting took place in private. Galatians 2 verse 2. But Acts 15 says that the Jerusalem council visit was more of a public event. Here in Galatians, Paul says that he went because of a revelation that was set before him. But in Acts 15, he was part of an official delegation or group from the church in Antioch. But one thing that really stands out is if Paul was referring back to Acts 15 here in Galatians 2, then he has left out the visit he made to Jerusalem in Acts 11. Which kind of seems to go against his argument if he's saying that he didn't have any contact with the apostles. And if this was the Jerusalem council visit, then why does he not say explicitly this in his argument to the Galatians? And what decision was made there? So, regardless of whether you think, because this is difficult to distinguish, honestly. So, regardless of whether you think it's Acts 11, the famine visit, or Acts 15, the Jerusalem council visit, the point Paul is trying to make is not unclear. That is very clear. Which is what? The point Paul is trying to make is to the Galatians is that for the last 14 years, I've been preaching the gospel of grace. I've been the apostle to the Gentiles. I've been seeing the grace of God unleashed, on the world, and people are being transformed by it. And I didn't need the apostles' stamp of approval or their endorsement to do this ministry. Paul is fighting and protecting grace and unity, and he's indicating the time he traveled and the location, but then he also mentions these partners in the gospel specifically. He says, he went there with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, who exactly is Barnabas? Well, we know he's the son of encouragement, right? From the book of Acts. He was a Levite from the Levitical tribe and he he came from Cyprus. He was the kind of guy, if there was a need in the church, he wanted to help meet that need. He was the go-to guy, you could say, for the leaders in Jerusalem. This was a guy who had his eyes open towards the needs of others. I mean, the Bible refers to him as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And through his ministry, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. We see that in Acts eleven twenty-four. Luke uses Barnabas as an example of someone with a proper perspective on, on money and property. Because when he sold his land, what did he do? He brought his proceeds to the apostles and laid it at their feet. Acts 4, verse 36. And so when Paul actually went on his first missionary journey, where did he go? Well, remember we're saying he went to the southern regions of Galatia, the the southern Galatian theory, which is most likely here, because Paul planted churches in this area of Galatia on his first missionary journey, the very recipients of this letter, and who was with Paul on that journey? It was Barnabas. Galatians also tells us that these people knew Barnabas personally. Barnabas was this great teammate for Paul to have as he's proclaiming the gospel of grace along with this servant-hearted man of God. But then Paul also specifically mentions someone else. Titus. Titus. He says, Titus went along with him. And who was Titus? Well, Titus was the Gentile of Gentiles. He was most likely one of Paul's converts and eventually Paul calls him my true child in the faith. You see that in Titus 1 verse 4. Titus was a faithful servant to the Lord and a dedicated help to Paul. He must have been a very trustworthy and dependable man because Paul appointed him to lead the works in Corinth and and Crete and eventually in Dalmatia. Knowing the difficult situations in both Corinth and Creed, we see that Titus was an insightful man who could handle problems with grace. This was Paul's go-to guy to handle difficult situations. And Scripture says that Titus had a God-given love for the Corinthian believers. In fact, in returning to Corinth, Titus went with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. Second Corinthians 8, 16. Now, the point is, when you see Barnabas, you see the representative of the connections to Jerusalem. And then when you see Titus, you see the representative for the Gentiles. He was the poster boy for the Gentiles. And all this is significant because already here in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul is protecting grace and unity by pointing out that when he went to Jerusalem again, and when he he went there, but he went there with his partners in the gospel. Jews and Gentiles working together. And this all brings us then to the second way Paul is protecting grace and unity. Secondly Paul says he's protecting grace and unity by wanting clarity. verse two by wanting clarity. So he's got Barnabas and he's got Titus along with him and he says they're going to Jerusalem and he says, I went up because of a revelation. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Paul wants to protect his message of grace and the unity that comes with it by making sure there's absolutely clarity from everyone involved. And so now he's telling the Galatians part of why he went to Jerusalem and what he did when he was there. And the first thing he mentions in verse 2 is, I went out because of a revelation. I went out because of a revelation. Now we know that, already mentioned that Paul's the kind of guy who's been directly talking with God. And God has been giving him all this amazing revelation to prepare him for ministry. But Paul could also be referring to the information he got from Agabus in Acts 11, verse 27. and so, so this all fits in this prophecy fits in well if we're talking about the second trip being the famine relief visit like we mentioned earlier but again what is important here is that what he is not saying what is paul not saying he's not saying i was called into the principal's office to meet with the jerusalem elders that these guys wanted to sort out my theology and my gospel of grace No, that is not why you went to Jerusalem. You came because of divine revelation. God wanted him to go there, not the apostles. And then the next thing he tells us is what he did when he was there. He says, and I set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. So he's giving them what he's been preaching all this time. Now, if we're tracking with Paul's sequence of events here, then Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem, it seems like, because Agabus had predicted this famine. And the church in Antioch wanted help. And while he was in Jerusalem, Paul was also responding to some of the concerns about the way Jews and Gentiles were mixing in the church. He's concerned about the true unity in grace. And so he mentions that he wanted to present his gospel of grace privately to those who seem to be influential. Now again, privately, seems to indicate that he's not talking about the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council here. He's referring to those he met with by using an interesting language as well, because he calls them those who seem to be influential. In this whole section of chapter 2, verses 1 and 10, we see that those who seem to be influential refers to Peter, James and John, these pillars of the Jerusalem church. Another way to say this is those of reputation, as other translations put it, like those celebrities and, and the adverts I mentioned who endorse the products. So we know he's referring to the apostles, but why does he call them those who seemed influential? Why, does, why doesn't he just say the apostles? You see, Paul's not setting himself up against these important leaders in the church. He's not jealous of their reputation or or their status. He's not looking to create a a split between them and him. Rather, he knows that the Judaizers, these so-called Jewish religious Christians, what they think about the apostles. He knows that these false influencers have been saying to the Galatians, trying to confuse them, And Paul now wants to to show that the Judaizers are making idols out of the apostles. It's almost like something we read in Corinthians, right? When it says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, and I follow Jesus. And you get to pick and choose who you follow. Because that is what people do. They elevate others into a place of unhealthy authority... And yes, we need to respect leaders absolutely, but if we put them in a position where Jesus needs to be, then we are messing with the gospel of grace and true unity in Jesus Christ. Today we would say maybe something like, well, MacArthur says this, so I follow him. Albert Moeller says that, so I follow him. Mark Davis says that, so I'm going to follow him. And the reality is that we are all influenced by other people to some degree. I mean, honestly, we live in a day and age where that is a full-time career to being an influencer. Can you imagine what Paul would have thought about that? You see, but the final authority and influence in our lives doesn't lie with any person, but with the one true uniting gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the Judaizers had put the apostles on another level. Because that was their circle of authority. They were so focused on Jerusalem and the Jewish idea of religion and faith. And so in a sense, what Paul is doing is he's taking the attention off the apostles and he's putting it on the purity of the gospel. He's protecting grace and unity by making it about the message and not about the man. He's making it about the message and not about the man. And then he tells us, why he privately laid before the apostles, his gospel. He says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now you read that at first and you think, is Paul actually doubting how legitimate his gospel really is? Is he meeting in private because he is not 100% confident that he's been actually sharing the right truth all this time? And I think it's been pretty clear from the whole chapter 1 that that is not what Paul is thinking here so what is he saying he is thinking about the practical implications if the apostles and himself were not on the same page so see it from his perspective because regardless of what the apostles think the reality still remains that the truth of the gospel according to paul will not be affected by the decision it's always going to be true because he got it as a direct revelation from god but he doesn't want the potential unclarity between them to hinder the work that he has been doing all this time. See, if the apostles would suggest in any shape or form that Paul's gospel was not quite right and not quite the same as theirs, that would influence his ministry significantly. Because what do these Judaizers want? They want a gospel of faith plus circumcision and Paul is like well if the apostles somehow agree with that then what I'm doing with the Gentiles is going to be in vain because you know what will happen every time I go into a Gentile region and preach about Jesus and free grace you know what people will do someone will get up and make the point that but that's not what they teach in Jerusalem Paul has been preaching true unity for the Jew and the Gentile and these Judaizers. They're only interested in that form of unity if the Gentiles will get circumcised. Where the Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be saved. And so if the apostles are saying, well, maybe the Gentiles, they have to consider circumcision, perhaps, or avoid eating pork, perhaps, or do all these things extra rituals then all that unity paul has been preaching is going down the drain he says my mission will be in vain one commentator he says as well he says the good news has the power only as it fulfills the single plan of the biblical god who made promises to his people in the old testament By cutting the Gentiles off from the spiritual root that nourishes them would endanger their continuing experience of God's blessing and favor. And a split between Jews and Gentile Christians could lead to such a situation. So can you imagine the problems if we had more than one gospel? Can you imagine what a walk with God would be like if you were suppressed to conform to the religious behavior of other people? Because that stuff is happening every single day. And so Paul wanted clarity on where the apostles stand on this. And so to make his point clear, he gives them an example. He's going to bring up an example. He says, our third point, Paul is protecting grace and unity by first mentioning his partnerships in the gospel, by wanting clarity because what is at stake, and now by giving the right example of grace and unity. Paul is protecting grace and unity by having the right example of grace. Verse 3, he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And even though he was a Greek means just though he was a Gentile. And so it might seem obvious by now that when Paul had set before them his gospel, this issue of circumcision did come up. And so here is Paul. Paul making his argument with a real life example and that is titus but even titus wasn't required to be circumcised he says paul wants the galatians to see that the apostles did not require titus to get circumcised and this is really a big deal he traveled to jerusalem he had this private meeting with the apostles knowing that there's this issue from people like the Judaizers, who are all about adding circumcision. And now Paul protects his message of grace and unity by pointing out that when he did meet with the apostles, they were in fact all on the same page. Why? Because Galatians, look, here's Titus, the Gentile of Gentiles, the poster boy example of someone that would totally need circumcision if that was required. And this was kind of a bold move on Paul's behalf. Because he would know how the uncircumcised Gentile would cause such a great uproar from the Judaizers. Bringing this man into their holy city. And the important thing from all of this is that the apostles agreed with Paul. Titus doesn't need to be circumcised. Circumcision will not make him more saved or less saved. And nowadays we might say, reading your Bible might not make you more saved or less saved. Going to church doesn't make you more saved or less saved. Growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you more saved or less saved. It is only by grace, through faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. So Titus, he's the perfect example of Paul's gospel of grace and unity and freedom right here in front of these people. And I know we've mentioned this issue of circumcision a lot already as we've been studying Galatians all this time. But now you're in chapter 2 verse 3. This is actually the very first time we see Paul explicitly mentioning circumcision in the letter. And I know that when you do read Acts 15 that followed all of this, you see that the issue got to such a serious point where this big conference was held to sort out this once and for all. Because the Jews were insisting in Acts 15.1 that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And think about it. If that was true, how many people today would not be saved if that was the requirement? But why would the Judaizers keep on making such a claim and comment? Why are they so persistent about this issue? It's because they had a Bible verse. They had a Bible verse. Like any good false teacher, they take a Bible verse and they twist it to make it sound like people need to conform to their beliefs. They were saying, hey, we believe in the Messiah. We believe that if you want the full package, the full salvation, you just need to get out your pocket knife and finish the job. Because they would go to Genesis 17, verses 9 and 14. Genesis 17. And use the Bible to convince the Gentiles that they need to be circumcised. Let me read it to you. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. They have a powerful verse behind them, behind their argument. And so the Gentiles might hear this and they could be like, whoa, well thank you for sharing that with us, I almost only believed half the gospel. We have this epic moment here where will Titus have to be circumcised? Because God's word in Genesis seems to be pretty clear, doesn't it? If you want to be in the covenant family of Abraham, you need to be circumcised. But Paul's like, hang on, hang on. Here's the proof, people. The apostles and I are all on the same page. Grace wins. Grace wins. Because Galatians, the apostles and I are in full agreement that Titus did not have to be circumcised. And later we see that the same outcome of the Jerusalem Council meeting. No Gentile required circumcision. Why? Because Jesus came to fulfill the law of God. His grace makes a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Do you see that's Old Testament passages? Or Romans 2, verse 29. Those with the new heart truly and finally, fully belong to God. God has always wanted more from His people than just this external conformity to a set of rules. He's always wanted His people to have a heart that loves Him, that knows Him, and that truly follows Him. And Titus was the right example at the right moment. Because again, think about this, if Titus had to be circumcised in that moment, it would be been a flat-out denial of the work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus would not be sufficient. And so Paul's point is very clear. I presented my gospel, and they commended or endorsed my gospel. So much so that Titus did not have to be circumcised. And so the reality of all of this is, Paul is not just fighting for people not to get circumcised. He is fighting for freedom from the law as a whole. He's fighting for the truth. Of what it makes to become a true member of God's family. Because is it really as simple as faith in Christ? Is that all that's required? And again, that's the whole point of the book of Galatians. Every Christian is saved in the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the church is a place that celebrates the the unity that we have in Christ. Every Christian has different gifts. We know that. We recognize that. We have different backgrounds, different cultures, different ministries and callings, but there is no difference in our standing before God. And if there's no difference in our standing before God, then there should be no difference in our standing with one another. Whether you are someone who is fighting with lust and sexual sin or with someone who doesn't. If you're someone who struggles with pride and someone who doesn't. Titus, Barnabas, Paul, they all show us that we are truly united in the grace of Jesus Christ. For those who truly believe in Him. And Paul wanted this example to reinforce his ministry to the Galatians. He wants to say to the Galatians that because the attack on our unity this is going to happen all the time so there's a reason why I have to do all this defending and protecting of grace and unity and so Paul mentions next that he's doing that again protecting grace and unity by knowing his opposition number 4 protecting grace and unity by knowing his opposition verse 4 Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us back into slavery. You see, in this ongoing thought that Paul is having, and he has this emotional outburst here in verse 4, because somehow these false brothers have brought up this issue of circumcision in Jerusalem. And the idea that of these false teachers are this threat on the gospel of grace. And it's so real for Paul that he brings in this random sentence about, in this argument, and talking about this opposition. And he, he calls them false brothers, specifically. Do you see it? False brothers. I like how one commentator says, it. he says, these false brothers are Pharisees at heart. These traitors assumed the name of believer, but they never truly believed. These religious people are not true brothers. They are not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As another scholar says, it is impossible to be a legalist and a Christian because if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Paul says later in Galatians. They are never going to be united to others in Christ. While they continue to promote their law-abiding, circumcision-dependent gospel. And look at what these false brothers do. Paul's not holding back in the way he describes these people. He says, there are false brothers who secretly sneak in or slip in. So they're sneaky and slippery as well. And what they do. And what do they want to do? To spy out our freedom. And slip in can be translated come in with unworthy motives. And so, this is guys, they want to be sneaky, they want to be slippery, and they want to be spies. They infiltrate themselves in the church by pretending to move with the crowd, to spy on people and how they're living in this free grace, so that they can counter that grace. And this freedom by enslaving people to their own views again. And we know that freedom is such an important theme in Galatians. And the rest of the Bible talks about it as well. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. These Judaizers or false brothers were living without the Spirit of the Lord. They are trying to cultivate the work of the Spirit with, with the works of the law, and it doesn't work. They did not understand true freedom because their hearts have not been circumcised. Who's got the real circumcision problem? And the Gospel of John says it so well John 8, verse 36. So if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. Free from the law and all its demands free from the power of sin free from this present evil age free from the opinions of others but not free to go on living a life of self-righteousness and sin not free to just do what you want but rather as romans 6 verse 18 says having been set free from sin having become slaves of righteousness just think about that for a moment that is actually so amazing This is what is so amazing about the gospel of free grace. Not only does God give you the righteousness you so desperately need, He makes you a new slave to that righteousness as well. That is your new nature in Christ. All that passion you had to make yourself right with God on your own is now being redirected by the Holy Spirit, made free by the Holy Spirit to live in grace and unity for the glory of God. And if we don't preach this truth to ourselves every single day, then what is going to happen? We're going to be influenced by our own legalism. By the legalism of other people. False brothers who slip in so easily and tempted to put the chains back on the freedom we have in Jesus. And Paul is like, true grace, true unity, and true freedom does not give in. Hear me now. True unity does not give in, which is our final point. Paul is saying he's protecting grace and unity by standing his ground. Verse 5. Standing his ground. He says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, while these false brothers are... Piling on the constant pressure again and again and again. They wanted Titus to be circumcised. They wanted all Gentiles to be circumcised. But Paul resisted that pressure. Because he knew he had to preserve the gospel for all people. Now, the original language talks about not yielding in submission for an hour. For an hour. But we don't talk like that today. We talk like how the translators have tried to help us here by saying he didn't give in for a moment, even for a second. Not a second did Paul budge on this truth. He's not going to budge on this truth whether the apostles agreed with them or not. Do you recognize that? Or whether these false brothers keep on putting pressure to have their beliefs included. And he wants the Galatians... To do the very same thing. He wants the Galatians to resist this pressure. Church, I want us to resist that pressure. And not give in for a second. We cannot give in to our own feelings that make us think we are not good enough. Or that we need to do more and more to have God be happy with us. We need to resist the pressure that says we cannot be truly united in Jesus Christ. When the world is telling us black people, white people, Indian, colored, you name it, have your own church. Rich people, have your own church. Poor people, have your own church. That culture, have your own church. We stand together firm on the gospel of grace because we are truly united in the blood of Jesus Christ. And His life, His death, His resurrection, acknowledging that we are all sinners in need of grace. And the only way to be right with God is by believing in what Jesus has done on your behalf. This is the truth that we should hold on to and not give in on for even a second. We cannot buckle under the pressure from all the lies around us. We go and ima- imagine now, because imagine this, if Paul and Titus did, what would we be left with to believe today? If Titus was circumcised after that meeting. I mean, people might look at that and say, come on Paul, are these guys really that bad? All they wanted is for Titus to get circumcised. I mean, there's a strong cultural dynamic going on here. Why am I such a big deal out of this? Why all this drama? See, God was pretty serious about this. Why so be so intense about it? And it's clear for Paul, he is a true freedom fighter because he knows what's at stake. He says it's the truth of the gospel. That is what is at stake. The truth of the gospel. Of the gospel, the very truth that brings Gentiles and all people into a right relationship with the Almighty God of this universe and gives us the power to maintain that relationship with God and with other people because of what Christ has done. You see, people compromise on the gospel for a lot less for a lot less for friendships, for relationships materialism, for jobs. We need to have this kind of determination to preserve the purity of the gospel. But not only for our sake, think about it, even for the sake of our children. The next generation needs to see what the gospel of grace looks like. And it starts in the home. It starts in the home. A home that is marked by grace. And not a Christian lifestyle that is just about ticking the boxes for Jesus. But a Christianity that understands true grace and true unity. So church, let us not assume the gospel. Let us not assume the gospel, but teach it and live it. If you have been truly born again by Jesus Christ, you need to teach this truth and live this truth. Paul is defending grace and unity. By showing us where he went. He shows us when he went there and who was with him. His true partners in the gospel. By showing us he wanted clarity. That he was on the same page as the other apostles. Where they all agree that grace wins. And Titus did not have to get circumcised. And he shows that the opposition is like sneaky, slippery characters who want to enslave you to their beliefs which all takes away from what Jesus has done. You see, and when the world is telling us to separate ourselves, to put barriers between us and others, Paul is saying, don't give in for a moment. Let us rather celebrate the unity we have in Christ. Let us praise God for how He used men like Paul and Titus and Barnabas and the Jerusalem apostles to protect and preserve the truth of the gospel. But more importantly, let us praise God that because of His only Son, He died and rose again, that we can have this one true gospel that saves all people. So that we can indeed be united in grace. Let us protect the grace and unity we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for this one gospel. Thank you so much that you have gone at such great lengths to set us free from the enslavement of this world. You've set us free from the enslavement of other people and their opinions, from other people and their religious beliefs, from having to perform our way into heaven. Father, that truly we have the the wonderful gospel of grace, the free grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you that you loved us so much that you would become a man and lay down your life so that we as sinners, filthy, filthy sinners, can be forgiven and receive this grace as a gift. And so, Father, we look to you by faith, by faith, through the Spirit that works within us and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are protecting us right now. And Lord, one of the ways you do that is by allowing us to study your word again and again and again. Help us not to become bored by the gospel. Help us to delight in this wonderful truth that changes everything about our lives. And then, Lord, help us to impart this truth, this this grace, this amazing grace to those who are around us that we would be faithful representations of that grace, that we would protect it and not budge and not give in for a second. When the lies come around in our heads to tell us how sinful we are, we acknowledge that sin, we repent of that sin, but we turn around and we run to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is only in Him that we find true freedom. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.